0: In this episode, we chat with Greg Morshall, managing partner at BPOC, a firm committed to middle-market healthcare companies typically led by founders. Greg was recognized by GrowthCap as a top healthcare investor of 2022. He joined BPOC as a partner in 1997. Greg currently serves on the boards of Medicus Healthcare Solutions and Maxer National Pharmacy Services. Beyond capital, BPOC has over two decades of accumulated experience to convey to growing businesses. Many founder-led companies represent the life's work of a group of dedicated individuals, so BPOC approaches each opportunity with respect and humility. The firm has produced exceptional results for all stakeholders over the years and contributed to expanded access, improved quality, and reduced costs of healthcare delivery. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. I'm Actually quite excited for this chat because I noticed you've been at the firm for quite some time, since almost the very beginning. And I'd actually like to start there, because it's rare that you find someone who's really built a firm for the amount of time you've been building BPOC. So could you tell us about those early days and how you were able to transition to the leadership position within the firm?
1: Sure. It's a good story, because one of the founders, Dave Beacon hired me out of college in 1990. So that will age me first and foremost. But that's a relationship that went from mentor to partner to friend several times and continues to be very important to me. But you're right, I joined right at the beginning of the firm's founding in 1996. We're all reformed investment bankers. And when one of our clients decided to Get more prolific in investing we decided to formalize and form the firm and develop some infrastructure and that was really the beginning we've homegrown substantially all of our talent and i've been fortunate to grow with the firm over the last 26 years and really as the founders aged into retirement status it enabled me to assume their role which really began in 2015 so i've been in the seat now for seven or eight years and it's been a, a wonderful journey and it started again with the relationship that began in 1990 which is very unusual I've, I've only had to produce one resume in my entire career
0: well there's a couple interesting points there one is related to this mentorship and it, tell us a little bit more about that relationship what was it that each of you saw in each other to have the confidence to partner up and build something together
1: Well, it's a very relevant topic because I've also got a young son embarking on a professional career in finance and the work at home environment, I think has been disruptive for young people. I just benefited from watching and learning. It's an apprenticeship business. And when you have an individual or two who is willing to be patient with you, allow you to make mistakes, but yet also show you the way, It's invaluable. There are countless Sundays. I recall when I was 25 years old, being in the office with Dave, watching him prepare for the next week's business and just absorbing everything he did. It was incredibly valuable. And I've tried to do that with our younger folks as well with varying success, but it's just so important to be in person. And one of the bits of advice I got from Dave, he said, develop your own board of directors in your head. You don't have to tell those individuals who they are or what their role is, but develop a group of people who you admire and watch and learn from them and replicate what they do best. And that advice I still use today because I'm still learning and it's a perpetual process. And that was probably the most poignant thing he ever said to me.
0: Has that group or board of directors, has that changed as you grew?
1: it has and you encounter new and interesting people over the course of your career and you know I've swapped a few out <laughs> for sure but the concept of seeking mentors and advisors however formal or informal i think is just part of the perpetual learning process and if you want to grow as an individual one of the things that's attractive about our business is it is always changing and there's always opportunity to learn and That's why I think many people are attracted to it. And from my perspective, learning from others is the best way to continue that journey.
0: The other thing you said that was interesting in the early days was that you had an investor who had interest in, it sounded like expanding maybe his exposure and his work with you. Is that investor still with you today? And how expansive was that increase in their involvement?
1: Yeah, well, the investor... Is Bill Petty, and Bill was one of the co founders of the firm. So the situation was, and again, you got to rewind back to the mid 90s when the industry was there, but it was certainly not as large and dynamic as it is today. Bill was going to his capital sources. We were advising him, and every time he would invest in a business, the process had to start all over. So the notion of forming a more permanent capital solution around healthcare was the catalyst to form the firm. So Bill is is one of those mentors of mine as well. And the investors he brought along were our original limited partners. And many of those individuals and firms are still with us today.
0: Now, one of the interesting things is you've scaled methodically over the years, and I'm sure that was purposely done. You were thoughtful about how big you wanted each of your funds to be. Tell us a little bit about that and why you chose to evolve the way you did
1: sure and it is a very premeditated strategy to remain in the middle market and healthcare first of all is a very middle market oriented sector it's highly fragmented it's large it's dynamic but most of the opportunities reside in very small companies from an investment standpoint so if you're committed to that strategy there is a self-limiting step function on fund size. So we don't wanna migrate our strategy out of that lower middle market segment. We've arranged the entire firm around addressing the challenges and opportunities that that segment has. So just by virtue of the commitment to that segment of the market, you know, keeps us in our size range from a fund perspective, which is generally five to 700 million. That's where we're most comfortable. And we can apply our skills best to companies that can accommodate that fund size.
0: Now, while fund size stays somewhat consistent, I would think perhaps the areas that you focus on within healthcare maybe has evolved over time just by virtue of how the overall healthcare sector evolves. Can you tell us a little bit about that evolution? Yeah,
1: it's a good question because like I said, the industry is so dynamic. It's 20% of our economy, employs millions of people. I think our approach, we've always focused on four broad areas of healthcare services, outsourcing, medical technology, and and pharmaceutical services. And within those four sectors, we are constantly iterating through all the small sub-verticals, and there's dozens of them. I think we follow 60 of them, and that has not changed. But however, in any one fund cycle, there may be a slight concentration in one or more of those broad verticals just based on valuation trends, reimbursement dynamics, availability of investable targets so it is a very dynamic process but one of the propositions we offer our investors is a commitment like i said to the segment but also the strategy so strategy creep is something we try to avoid and the investment process itself is very dynamic as we search for good opportunities across those four broad segments
0: Now, within all these areas of healthcare and sub areas, how do you set up your team so you can can appropriately address and seek out those opportunities?
1: It's a very important question. And since we only focus on healthcare, we've got a built-in advantage because we all kind of speak the same language. So the culture of the firm is such that it's very collaborative. We've all been doing this for a long time. So there's quite a bit of idea sharing. None of us is necessarily economically incentivized to do more versus another partner so we share a lot of ideas and opportunities based on capacity and historic experience that's really where the advantage comes because we've seen so much and a number of the partners here have developed expertise in certain verticals so naturally the opportunities would go to the appropriate place but we do have What I would call loose swim lanes based on sector, just to process the volume of opportunities we're seeing. A good example of that would be, we have a partner, Pete Magus, who is one of the best staffing-related investors in the industry. And he's developed a great reputation. And as you might expect, everything related to staffing, which is one of our long-term investment themes, goes to Pete. And we're all helping him develop that opportunity set, but he's principally the lead on that particular segment, for example.
0: I typically ask about, in general, value creation capabilities, and I noticed you do have a fairly broad set of things you can do to help companies. Maybe the best way to demonstrate this is to tell us about an example of maybe something memorable that could have been across your firm lifespan of where you felt the firm really added a lot of value to a company and saw it succeed.
1: Sure, there's a couple examples, I'll highlight one, and it's a business that, you know, I just love this company because it addresses access and it lowers costs and it provides a high quality service, but we recently sold, but had owned the business called Cranial Technologies, which made the little helmets that babies wear when they have plagiocephaly, which is effectively a misshapen head. And it's a very effective remedy for that condition. It's largely cosmetic. We encountered this company that was founder-owned, hadn't really had the capital or the risk appetite to expand its footprint across the U.S. And the business model is basically physical sites, almost like an orthodontist, where an infant would go in and get fitted and assessed with a helmet and then custom-made to that baby's condition. But the firm hadn't really expanded beyond some very large metropolitan areas. So there was demand across the country. And one of the things we did was really open up the capital availability to this company and encourage them to dream big, take some risk on opening sites in areas of the country that maybe did not have access. And this is a business that is about 30% Medicaid and the Medicaid program obviously addresses the lower end of the income spectrum. So when you deliver a service to those populations, and a particular one to infants on a large scale, it was just a very rewarding experience. And it was fun to see the team blossom after some initial resistance and embrace the idea of making this a truly national business. And needless to say, we executed flawlessly, and. Uh, had a great outcome but more importantly it was a very good example of how private equity can be very instrumental in addressing access to good quality care and also enhancing the experience of a management team
0: and curious was the management team or founders of that company when you first got to know them were they seeking a capital partner and advisor to help them expand the business how did that come about Sure. There was some capital
1: in the business already, but once again, there wasn't the light switch that had been flipped on growth. And I'll give you some numbers. They were opening about three centers a year when we invested in the business. And we got that number up to more than 15 over the course of the ensuing two years. And and that's a very rapid growth rates. And we add a lot of management talent, including a new CEO as the founder retired. That was, like I say, fully embraced by the rest of the team.
0: And just curious, was it something that maybe they were shy of doing because they felt like they couldn't handle more rapid growth? Or was it really that they were simply capital constrained?
1: It was a little bit of both, but I think the more profound issue was they were risk averse and When we proposed accelerating the development, there was just a bunch of reasons why we couldn't do it as opposed to let's figure out where we want to be and solve for the capabilities we need to accomplish that. And once you break that veil and get buy-in from the broader team and they start to see some early success, you can sit back and watch to a certain degree because it really is exciting when that strategy is embraced. So that was the bigger factor. Capital is available abundantly from anybody, but putting the pieces in place to really get team buy-in against the strategy that makes a lot of sense is the real key.
0: Now, building a private equity firm is no easy feat. There can be a lot of ups and downs, a lot of challenging moments. And you know it's something that probably can consume you almost every day. There's some problem to solve. Can you tell us about a challenging moment it could have been with a deal it could have been internally but when you got to the other side of it it was a tremendous success and growth outcome
1: yeah there's always a challenge and i'll start with just internal processes i think those firms i would put us in this category that have longevity have very strong internal processes and it sounds like table stakes but When you go through generational leadership transition, you grow in terms of personnel, there's always risk that you get sloppy on your processes. So we pay a lot of attention to that. And then the correlation for us and many other investors to the quality of the management teams we're sponsoring and our success is very strong. It's almost one-to-one. So getting the team right is paramount. And even a good team in a bad business can succeed and we had an instance several years ago where an industry got very challenging but the team was able to address their own business through some cost cutting but also some creative restructuring of their customer relationships that enable us to pull through a rough spot in the industry and that's the kind of advice that many small companies don't get until they encounter a professional investor But it's kind of part of the overall value proposition to a founder-owned business is your business doesn't go straight up and to the right forever. If you really want to create generational wealth and a good experience for your employees, which are equally important, by the way, you need to be very well aware and receptive to change. And, And that's where our role is most profound.
0: Now, let's switch over to the macro environment and the healthcare sector overall. Fortunately, you're in probably one of the more resilient sectors where there's always a need for healthcare. But maybe talk a little bit about things that concern you, maybe things that get you excited about where healthcare is headed, or just other facets of the sector that you think about.
1: Sure. Well, we're very fortunate to be in healthcare because over the last 40 years, which included a couple of wars, five recessions, a pandemic, and financial crisis, healthcare has always grown healthcare spending has never gone backwards. So there's always demand as you point out. So we're fortunate in that respect that the industry is very resilient. Now that's not to say challenges are always on the horizon. And at a macro level, we are very concerned about the fiscal health of the country and the need to rebalance the interest rate environment. So it is gonna be a choppy quarter or two or even year in our future but that should result in some very attractive investment opportunities because valuations are most certainly coming down and the uncertainty often unlocks founder interest in transacting. So at a macro level, we're cautiously optimistic. Now from a healthcare perspective, at some point there's gonna be reimbursement turbulence Because every legislative action that's come out of the government since 2010 with the Affordable Care Act has been inherently inflationary to healthcare spending. So we've seen this many times before, every five or seven years, and it's been longer this time, the government comes around and makes some reimbursement cuts to address healthcare inflation. So we watch that very closely. It is a challenge to Kind of discover where the exposure is, but I think we've gotten very good at that over the years and manage our exposure to reimbursement changes very effectively. But that is the principal challenge over the next decade, I think healthcare will face.
0: Now, you said something interesting earlier about this new environment where young adults graduating from college and maybe not having that opportunity for mentorship, thinking about this younger generation of folks moving into private equity, Do you think it's going to continue to be the same model, the private equity model? How do you think private equity, if you were to start a firm today in your early 20s, what do you think would be different about it?
1: That is a good question. I mean, the model today, particularly as you incubate junior talent, is relying on the investment banks to train and develop that talent. So almost every firm is hiring out of the investment banking community. And it's because most firms like ours and even the big ones don't have the training infrastructure to develop the basic analytical skills. I think the challenge private equity has is appealing to a broader universe of talent that may have the requisite skills, but doesn't view private equity as a evil empire. And that could be in the diversity realm. It could also be just providing a better work-life balance for the junior people. And we're certainly addressing that with work-life balance accommodations in terms of the workload. And but that's a principal long-term challenge. I'm not sure the model changes all that much. The change that could occur would be us taking folks right out of college, which again would burden us with the notion of training them, but it would certainly expand the available talent pool.
0: Got it. Well, we're coming up on time. I'd like to end with a couple questions. One is, can you tell us about a book that you've read that has had a profound impact on you, or you can just provide a book recommendation?
1: Well, one of my favorite books, and I've reread it several times, it's probably unknown. I, first of all, the author is Timothy Egan. He's a wonderful author of nonfiction. And the book is Long Nights of the Shadow Catcher, And it's a biography written about a gentleman who embedded himself in the American Indian tribe community at the turn of the last century, the 19th century. And he was one of the first individuals to document and use photography to capture that culture. And it's a fascinating book of resilience. He was sponsored by JP Morgan, the individual JP Morgan back in the day and Teddy Roosevelt. And he succeeded in drafting 22 encyclopedic volumes about the American Indian culture. Only to die broke, but it was this passion in life. And and I often recall my favorite quote from him is, The dream is so big, I can't see it all. And that was how he approached life. And it's just a very inspiring story about somebody pursuing a dream, which at the end wasn't about money, it was about the dream. I would encourage people to pick up that book. It's a fast read and a fascinating story.
0: Fantastic. The last question. Can you tell us about a person that you admire? It could be a leader. It could be you know, an everyday person. It could be someone across any domain or field of expertise.
1: This is probably a common one, but I also recently read for the second time the Steve Jobs biography. You know, that man's history is fascinating, the way he commercialized and saw around the corner the demand for consumer technology, exited the business, came back, and continued to build what is arguably... world's most valuable business and if you really study how we assess consumer demand everything from the way a product was packaged to how a consumer uses a product in their daily life there's a lot of lessons there and particularly around once again the concept of resilience but also looking forward and i'm not sure how we manage people there's conflicting notions of whether he was a friendly boss or not but sometimes these leaders are difficult but they produce legacy businesses that we all obviously rely on today and i've always admired that about how steve jobs managed his career
0: excellent well greg i want to thank you again for taking the time i know our audience will find this very insightful
1: my pleasure it's nice talking to you rj